It is 6 p.m. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, March 29th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the latest NPR News headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED Public Radio, including details about the months of work and negotiation that brought about the reopening this week of pre-K to second grade classes in the Berkeley Unified School District. Then, National Native News reports on wind-driven fires that have caused evacuations at the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. We'll have a roundup of regional news and weather and close out with Al Stoller talking about playing the odds with subatomic particles. Here are the latest headlines from National Public Radio. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Even as President Joe Biden is speeding up the availability of COVID-19 vaccines to millions of Americans, health experts continue to implore people to be careful about an increase in cases across the country. Biden now says upwards of 90 percent of all U.S. adults will be eligible for the vaccine by April 19th, and he agrees Americans need to remain vigilant. We're in the life and death race for the virus that is spreading quickly. With cases rising again, new variants are spreading, and sadly, some of the reckless behavior we've seen on television over the past few weeks means that more new cases are to come in the weeks ahead. U.S. coronavirus infections over the weekend surpassed 30 million with a COVID-19 death toll now edging toward 550,000. Health experts say they are worried about a fourth COVID-19 surge that could cost more lives if pandemic restrictions are lifted too quickly. Members of the European Union are moving ahead with plans for so-called vaccine passports that show proof of inoculation against COVID-19. But as Abe Abarai with member station WMFE in Orlando reports, Florida's governor plans to block companies from using them. Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, says he will sign an executive order this week to block companies from using COVID-19 vaccine passports. The governor says he will not require residents or people traveling to Florida to get a vaccine, and he will not allow government or private businesses to require proof of vaccination either. I think ultimately it would create problems uh, in the state. It's not necessary to do, and so we're going to look to do it. So we will do some action this week, uh, and then we will also work with the legislature. DeSantis has largely kept Florida open since last summer, preventing local governments from enforcing mask mandates or shutting down businesses. For NPR News, I'm Abe Abariah in Orlando. The Biden administration announced a major expansion of offshore wind energy that could bring thousands of wind turbines to the east and west coasts. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the U.S. is trying to catch up with Europe, which already has many more offshore wind farms. The White House set a goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030, enough to power more than 10 million U.S. homes. Right now, only one wind project is operating in the Northeast. Still, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm says such a quick increase is possible. It is going to be a full force gale of good paying union jobs that lifts people up. The administration says the plan will support about 32,000 construction-related jobs through 2030. Agency heads say their departments will work more closely together to speed environmental reviews. And the Energy Department is making $3 billion in loans available to the offshore wind industry. 
Jeff Brady, NPR News. A mix close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 98 points. The Nasdaq closed down 79 points. You're listening to NPR News. Families of victims in the grocery store shooting in Boulder, Colorado, were starting to hold memorial services for those lost. Colorado Public Radio's Natalia Navarro reports a funeral mass for Boulder police officer Eric Talley was held today in downtown Denver. Officer Talley was 51 years old when he was killed last Monday. He was the first officer to arrive on the scene. Today, mourners filled the front of the Denver Catholic Cathedral and around 1,600 people watched the live stream. Father James Jackson spoke during the High Requiem Mass, which was one of Tally's favorites. We are here today to thank God the Father for having created Eric Talley. What a creation he was. He was a good man, an honorable and faithful father, a faithful husband, a son, a friend, a faithful and heroic officer of the law. Tally leaves behind a wife and seven children. There will be a public memorial tomorrow morning. For NPR News, I'm Natalia Navarro in Denver. The Biden administration is extending a federal moratorium on evictions of tenants who've fallen behind on their rent during the coronavirus pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention today moving to continue current pandemic-related protections, which had been slated to expire this week. Under the announcement today, the current moratorium will be extended through the end of June. It was initially put in place last year to provide protection for renters out of concern many families could lose their jobs and find themselves on the street. A ban in housing foreclosures was already extended to June. Crude oil futures prices posted modest gains, oil up eight-tenths of a percent to 61.43 a barrel. This is NPR. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. Contra Costa County is expected to open up vaccinations to everyone 16 and older later this week. The move would make Contra Costa the first county in the Bay Area to offer more sweeping eligibility and move it ahead of the state timeline to provide shots to those 16 and older by April 15th. Health officials say the decision is still not final and will depend on vaccine supply the county receives along with how quickly available appointments fill up in the coming days. Well, it is a big day for some students, parents, and teachers here in Berkeley. The first day back to school for kids in preschool through second grade. Berkeley Unified School District Superintendent Brent Stevens joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it is March. Uh, it's the end of March, but there is still considerable relief from so many parents about getting their children back into a real classroom five days a week. Talk to me about what it took to make that happen. With an awful lot of collaboration more than any other thing, we've been in discussions with our teachers and um, other employee groups now for months trying to organize a way to return to classes. We've also counted on a huge amount of feedback from our families to understand exactly what their needs are at this moment. So this particular return for pre-K through grade two uh, represents a lot of collaboration, a lot of problem solving, and we're very happy that the day has finally arrived. And what percentage of students at Berkeley Unified have opted to go back to school? I should really say their parents have opted to go back to school in person. Right now at the elementary level, about 83% of our families have selected to return to campus. Uh, I mean, 17% of families across the elementary schools will remain in distance learning. And how does that break down by race? Are we seeing more white families sending their kids back to school in person? 
We are. Among Berkeley families, white families are selecting to return to campus at the highest rates. And then uh, sort of in this order, special education students are returning at about a 70% rate, English language learners at about 67%, African-American families uh, about 54% at this point have selected to return to campus. It's worth noting that it's the majority of every group that is selected to come back, but these differences are present and they're concerning. And I've also seen parents of color talk about the issue of trust, some saying they don't trust the system to keep them and their kids safe, saying, you know, they can't expect the schools to do so now. What do you say to parents in that category who are reluctant to send their kids back? Yeah, we've at this point uh, really been careful to try and offer all of our families a choice while providing accurate information about all of the risk mitigation strategies that are in place in our schools. Uh, We've had multiple town halls, lots of printed materials, um, lots of uh, parent forums uh, intended to give parents and parents of color particularly an opportunity to learn about the many steps that we'll be taking to keep all of our students and staff safe. And at the same time, it's been very important to us that we acknowledge that some families are simply not ready and that we must provide a high quality alternative for those families. Yeah, let's talk about that, Superintendent Stevens. What is the plan to make sure that students who stay in distance learning don't fall behind? So we're offering uh, an identical distance learning program to the one that we have throughout the pandemic um, that features a lot of live Zoom instruction, specialty classes, half group instruction for students to get even more sort of specialized attention from their Mm -hmm. teachers. And in fact, we've made expansions to the distance learning schedule as we reopen our in-person classes. All of this came with a lot of administrative work and, frankly, a few very difficult decisions that we had to make to rewrite our elementary classroom lists. This was by far the single hardest task that fell to us, and I think the the greatest Mm. and most difficult decision that the board and I have had to make through the course of the pandemic. Well, how are you doing? Are you looking forward to what's to come? I'm excited. I'm uh, sitting in my car uh, ready to head off to my first (laughs) school and see a morning arrival under these new conditions. It's been now more than a year since I've had a chance to, to visit parents and students on a playground as they head into school, and I'm really excited about it. Well, best of luck to you and to all the students and parents in the district. Superintendent Brent Stevens is with Berkeley Unified, and we so appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. An outbreak of the stomach bacteria H. pylori at an immigrant detention center in San Bernardino County has sparked concerns about the health and safety of detainees held there. From our partner station KVCR, Benjamin Perper reports the outbreak is the latest in a chain of events prompting advocacy groups to call for the Adelanto Detention Center to be shut down. We call for ICE to release all immigrants inside Adelanto. That's Lisbeth Ablin with the Inland Coalition for Immigrant Justice, which is part of the Shutdown Adelanto Coalition. The group is alleging that potentially hazardous and unsanitary water inside the facility is spreading H. pylori to detainees. 
And so we have at least three reports confirmed, but we we have recorded a history of this H. pylori infection throughout the years. So it's very disturbing. Um, and this is all due to the unsanitary conditions. In response to this allegation, an ICE official said the agency is committed to ensuring detainees are treated humanely and that a recent facility inspection conducted independently by the Office of Detention Oversight noted zero deficiencies for safety or care, end quote. The ICE Office of Professional Responsibility Office of Detention Oversight is not an independent organization, it is an organization under ICE. So it seems a little bit disingenuous to say that ICE conducted a review of ICE's own facility and determined it was fine. To me, that is like saying, you know, the prison guards reported that the prison was perfectly fine. That's Margaret Hellerstein of the Esperanza Immigrant Rights Project, who represents a detainee who contracted H. pylori at Adelanto. This isn't her only issue with the report. The fact that they talked to 12 detainees out of, at that time, I don't know how many, but hundreds, and it wasn't an on-site inspection, to me, that is disingenuous at best. Medical records obtained by KVCR confirmed that at least one detainee inside Adelanto contracted H. pylori after the ODO conducted its inspection in September. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Bernardino. And that is the California Report for this Monday, March 29th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Blackfeet Nation in Montana declared a state of emergency Sunday due to grass fires and high wind. Residents in the community of Blackfoot were ordered to evacuate as a precaution. Browning Middle School was opened as an emergency shelter. According to the tribe's incident command, cause was being determined Sunday as crews worked to control the blaze. By 6 p.m., 25,000 acres had burned and one structure was lost. A measure in the Washington legislature would expand the state's innovative model for affordable long-term care. Tribes could opt in, as Eric Tegedoff reports. The Long-Term Care Trust Act, passed in 2019, created a trust fund for Washingtonians through a payroll premium that collects 58 cents for every $100 earned. It was the first of its kind in the nation. House Bill 1323 would ensure that people with disabilities have access to the program and allow tribal communities in the state to opt in. Vicki Lowe is head of the American Indian Health Commission. The values that tribes and indigenous people have for taking care of their elders and trying to keep them home as much as they can really align with this type of coverage. So they were very interested in it. The bill also clarifies how people can opt out, such as if they have an existing long-term care policy. The lifetime cap for benefits is $36,500. The insurance industry has argued against the program, saying it could provide better coverage cheaper. The bill currently is in the Senate Committee on Health and Long-Term Care. I'm Eric Tegedoff. In Wisconsin, thousands have lost their lives to COVID-19, and Native Americans are dying at the highest rate in the state. The Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa recently lost tribal elder Joe Rose at the age of 85 due to complications from the virus. Daniel Kading reports on the lives he touched. Joe Rose was the first person to welcome Patty Lowe to the Bad River community when she reconnected with the tribe 45 years ago. Lowe is a Bad River tribal member, but she grew up in Milwaukee. He became like a second dad to me. Everything I learned about the Ojibwe, I learned from Joe. 
Bad River Tribal Chairman Mike Wiggins says Joe was an encyclopedia of knowledge about the history of the Anishinaabe people and their cultural practices. He taught people to live in a way that would benefit those for seven generations to come. From a community perspective, you know, all of our elders are, are real sacred because they, they give us those tangible ties to the past and help us remember where we came from. Rose passed on his teachings to Bad River Youth and through a Native American Studies program at a private college in northern Wisconsin. That's where Lakota Ray tribal member Mick Isham first met Joe more than 30 years ago. He's now executive administrator of the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. That guy saved my life, and I'll never forget it, because I swear I don't know where I'd be without him. Aisham, whose dad is Native and mom is white, remembers struggling with his identity. He says Joe helped him find his way. Lowe says losing someone to the virus is always heartbreaking, but she says it hits tribal communities even harder. To lose those elders who can speak the language and know all the truths embedded in that language is so devastating. Bad River tribal member Dylan Jennings says many are still in shock, but he knows Joe would be proud to see community members continuing his legacy. He's made a huge, huge enough impact to where his memory lives on through our language being revitalized and our, our cultural way of life and our ceremonies being revitalized and still being carried forward. So that those teachings will live on for the next seven generations. I'm Danielle Kading. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support from AmeriCorps. Members who serve in VISTA fight against poverty while earning money for college and gaining skills. Rewarding service opportunities are available in communities across America. Info at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA. Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is looking for an enthusiastic and creative person to manage our social media and website content, information and application for the digital producer job at nativenews.net under employment. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. On April 7th, the Nevada County Community Library will reopen its branches for limited hours and capacity, using what the library is calling a grab-and-go model. County libraries have been closed for months to in-person use due to the COVID-19 pandemic. As of April 7th, patrons will be invited to browse and select materials for checkout within a 30-minute period. This system is designed to offer safety for visitors and staff. Operating hours and capacity will vary by branch. The Truckee, Madeline Helling, and Grass Valley libraries will be open Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The Penn Valley Library will be open Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the Bear River Library will be open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. The Doris Foley Library for Historical Research will be open Thursday and Friday from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. Library book drops will remain open. The library has suspended overdue fines during the pandemic. Library staff have implemented health measures including installing plexiglass screens and placing floor markers that indicate proper social distancing. 
Nevada County is currently in the red tier of the statewide tier system, and the libraries will be limiting the number of people in the branches at any given time in alignment with red tier guidelines. If Nevada County moves within the statewide tier system, reopening plans will be re-evaluated. County Librarian Nick Wilzick said he's excited to welcome people back into the facilities. We have all missed the face-to-face interactions that are so important in a close-knit community like Nevada County. This week, some big changes are coming to the COVID-19 vaccination system in California. Starting Thursday, every state resident 50 and older will be eligible to make an appointment for the vaccine. And starting April 15th, everyone 16 years old and older will be eligible for an appointment. As has been the case, appointments will be dependent on vaccine supply. If you're looking for other signs that life might be returning to normal, whatever that is, the Sacramento Bee reports today that the Roseville site that had been serving as Placer County's main county-run vaccination center will be closed Thursday and Friday as the venue hosts an anime event. A county webpage showing dates and times for vaccine appointments available at The Grounds, formerly the Placer County Fairgrounds, says the clinic will be closed those two days due to an event. And it will shut down, the Bee reports, as the site hosts a multi-day in-person event, the type that many health experts have been discouraging for most of the pandemic. The event is described as a swap meet organized by SAC Anime. The Grounds website says that more than 100 vendors and cosplayers are expected. A user on SAC Anime's latest Facebook post commented, They are taking away the largest vaccination center in the county for this. SAC Anime organizers defended themselves in comments, writing that the date was chosen by the county in late 2020 and that it had held a Roseville Comic Con at the same venue last October. Thursday kicks off the first day of Nevada City's annual spring cleanup. During the month, businesses, residents, building owners, the City of Nevada City, and the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce will team up for a month-long cleanup of downtown Nevada City and the Seven Hills Business District. Projects include power-washing sidewalks, painting curbs, building planter boxes, planting hanging baskets and planters, weeding, and painting storefronts. Nevada City Public Works will oversee larger projects such as the cleaning of gas lamps and new signage. Workdays will be on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7.30 to 11.30 a.m. throughout April. Volunteers can sign up using 211 Connecting Point, emailing board at nevadacitychamber.org, or calling 530-265-2692. Or they can show up at the Commercial Street parking lot the morning of each workday. Volunteers are asked to bring their own mask, work gloves, and water. Tools and other supplies will be provided. Nevada County will host an online community meeting Thursday evening, introducing residents to the California Environmental Quality Act. The Act, popularly known as CEQA, is a statewide policy implemented for environmental protection. The CEQA law mandates that state and local agencies follow a protocol of analysis and public disclosure of potential environmental impacts associated with proposed development projects. The county is providing the online community meeting to educate anyone interested in how the CEQA process works and how they can become involved and informed of land use developments. 
The webinar will start at 6.30 p.m. and include time for participants to ask questions. More information can be found at mynevadacounty.com slash CEQA or by contacting the Nevada County Planning Department at planning at co.nevada.ca.us or at 530-265-1222. In the weather forecast for our region, breezy today and Tuesday with north to east winds. Stronger mountain winds tonight into Tuesday morning. Additional strong winds in the valley may be seen Tuesday afternoon, particularly in the Delta region. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with an overnight low of 48 degrees. On Tuesday, sunny with a high of 71 degrees and a low of about 52. Winds of 25 to 30 miles per hour are expected. In Truckee, clear skies with an overnight low of 21 degrees. Tuesday in Truckee, mainly sunny with a high around 50 degrees and a low of 22. In Sacramento, clear skies with an overnight low of 49 degrees. Tuesday in Sacramento, windy with lots of sunshine and a high of nearly 80. Winds at 20 to 30 miles per hour are expected with higher wind gusts possible. Next, science commentator Al Stoller talks about the quantum leaps we take in everyday life. I spoke today, just after nine on the morning show, if you'd like to go into the KVMR archives to listen. I explained how we burn our food. Put that word burn in big quotation marks, please. We burn our food to get energy, but we avoid setting ourselves on fire by stretching out the all-at-once chemistry of a wood fire into a dozen or so steps producing small amounts of energy at any one time. Fire involves oxygen atoms grabbing electrons from wood. We're all familiar with electrons. They're subatomic particles. They're the ones that jump off a little sweater when you pull it up over your head. Some atoms feel a need for more electrons than nature has given them. Atoms like oxygen actually grab electrons from other atoms, which is just what's happening in a fire. Oxygen scarfing up electrons from the wood and releasing energy when it gets those electrons. To stretch that all-at-once reaction out into a dozen or so steps, we've got to move the electrons toward oxygen. We've got to move those electrons step-by-step through wires. But the wires our ancestors evolved some billions of years ago, those wires suck. Actually, our wires were designed by evolution to suck. A hundred-something years ago, Physicists discovered atoms are not the smallest things there are. Atoms themselves are made of even smaller, subatomic particles. It wasn't long after that they discovered that these subatomic particles behave according to different rules than the rules we follow in the everyday world. In the subatomic world, life is a crapshoot. It's like shooting dice. There's a limit to what you can say for sure. The best you can do is figure the odds, the probabilities that an electron, say, will be here or there. Right now, let's say a particular electron is over here near the food atom. But to be useful, we've got to get it over there, closer to the oxygen atom. But our wires, our conductors, suck so bad, they won't carry any electrons at all. 
here's where the crapshoot comes in. We cannot say that any particular electron is here, only that the odds are good that it's right here. But there is a small chance that this electron is already over there, over there a step closer to the oxygen atom. Our bodies have evolved to take advantage of those small odds to latch onto an electron when it mysteriously shows up over there. It takes special biological machines to deal with this odd form of reality, this quantum reality. We get the building blocks to make those machines from the food we eat. When scientists invented the word vitamin many years ago, that's short for vital amines, they had no idea why vitamins were indeed vital, why they were essential to life. It turns out some of those vitamins plug right in to our electrical system. For KBMR, I'm Al Stalin. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, news by and about women from WINGS. This week, WINGS explores historic media bias against women in a speech by Robin Morgan. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. You've been listening to the KVMR Evening News. Now we want to listen to you. If you have an opinion you'd like to share, we invite you to submit a commentary to news at kvmr.org. Commentary guidelines can be found at kvmr.org under the news section. This program is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs at 6 p.m. every Monday through Friday. Have a wonderful Monday evening. Mm-hmm.